0: And Ari has lived here half her life. She grew up spending six months in New York and six months in Bombay. It gives her this great mixture of really, you know, really, really classy New Yorker, but, like, at the same time, if you look at me sideways, I'll kick you in the teeth. And, and Desi Girl, her accent even switches between New York and Bombay, depending on who she's talking to or or what what feelings she has, like by any by by all measures, she is both and should have both citizenships. But because of some arbitrary rules, she doesn't. She only has the one, the one that happens to be really inconvenient for us in this stage in our relationship. Mm-hmm.
1: This is Status, a show about the people we love, the places we come from, and where those two things intersect. If this isn't your first episode, go ahead and pause the show right now and head to iTunes and leave a review. I want to keep making the show better, and the only way that I can do that is to hear from you. Today I've got a story for you that I've been wanting to tell for a long time. It's the story of a couple whose priorities changed entirely the moment that they met. Let's get into it.
2: Um, do you want me to start recording now? Okay. Um, record. Okay, cool.
1: This is Ariha. She's a writer in San Francisco, and we met when we were both grad students at Stanford.
2: I was born in India. You know this. Um, my parents got divorced when I was a year, year and a half old. I mean, that process started before I was even born. They were not getting along. And uh, my mom moved for a lot of uh, custody issues. She moved to America to complete her education. She wanted to get a master's degree. She ended up getting like four And uh, my dad got custody of me because he was a lawyer, and honestly, he had a lot of influence that he used. You know, there was this kind of weird transatlantic dual custody thing where where I visited my mom. It was usually either winter vacation, which was like two, three months long, or usually summer vacation, which was like four or five months long. So effectively, I was here half the year. And it's always been a back and forth. And I think when I was really little, my mom, wanted to have custody of me and, and bring me over to the states and you know get me citizenship and all of that stuff but the the battle with my dad was very very long and very messy and I, I think honestly a lot of it became just like a spiting the other person thing that's just a feeling that I have now um, in retrospect I went to school in India the whole time so grade school um, high school um I only came to new york for college but effectively i'd been living here i guess like half my life before that and and always felt this like weird you know from a very young age it's like i think differently than a lot of indians do and i also think differently than most american kids especially you know when i was in high school at that age did
1: what were some of those differences
2: um I was too conservative for for American high schools. My mom never never wanted me to go to high school here because she had she went to school in India and she grew up there and, and she knew kind of how like hard it could be for American kids, which I which I didn't really understand until pretty recently. You know, there's a lot of pressure on kids in middle and high school, and uh, like sex becomes a thing way way earlier than it does um, in India, and I think that. That kind of forces kids to grow up earlier in the in the wrong ways. And in India, it's kind of the other problem where everyone is is too sheltered and spoiled, and they don't you know they kind of settle into their routines very early and they don't try new things and they're and that makes them very judgmental and susceptible to believing in taboos. Um, and I was I was never one for kind of putting up with that. Um, I dealt with a lot of that because, you know, grandpa in the nineties, I was the only kid in my high school who had divorced parents. And I mean, I remember in like second grade having to deal with someone's mother who basically wouldn't allow her kid to to hang out with me because I was a bad influence because of my divorced parents. Because you know that means I was raised by wolves and had no kind of. Um, formal upbringing and no manners and I was the crazy girl who had no parents. There was a lot of that shit growing up and there is frankly still a lot of that shit even now. I don't want to say where do I belong because that sounds so dramatic but it kind of feels that way because it's um, like like in India I'm I'm not Indian enough and here I'm too Indian. There's always this kind of struggle of like why am I fighting so hard to be in either of these places where I don't really belong? And
1: Ariha might not have felt perfectly comfortable in either India or the U.S., but in her freshman year of college, she had the opportunity to experience a new third place.
2: It felt very, and I think that's why in Italy I actually had. Uh, The least trouble I've ever had making friends because I could kind of experiment and and be whoever I wanted to be and and that was okay And And there was no one kind of rolling their eyes at me because I was I was doing something different or I was being someone different So I I came to college here and I I think by the time my mom, uh, my mom had been here since I was two, so 92, um, but she, because of all the green card backlog, didn't end up getting her green card till I was 18 already. It took her my whole life. And so by the time she could sponsor me, I was already legally an adult and she couldn't sponsor me. You know, I think we had a conversation once where she was like if you want to do this I can do this we can try and push it through but at that point it would have meant that I couldn't leave the country again to go back to India until until the process was completed which could have taken you know months or years and that wasn't something that I was kind of re- prepared to do at that point I didn't think that I would ever want to kind of be here permanently and uh, that's kind of changed now. <laughs>
1: As for how that's changed, let's start with how I met Ariha. She and I met in a week-long summer course at the D School at Stanford. We were part of a small group of friends from that class that ended up spending a lot of our time together in the following year, including a Tahoe trip that I couldn't make for one of our friends' birthdays.
2: And then she had her birthday party I guess in Tahoe where she invited a bunch of us up for the weekend and I was actually a little surprised when when I got invited because I mean we'd kind of hung out in a group but it wasn't I don't like she didn't invite everyone from the d-school so I was like oh cool you know I'm getting invited to things go Reha making friends very nearly didn't make it because I was Covering this this stupid cybersecurity conference, uh, and I had been up since four a.m. and I had been I'd worked for like, you know, like twelve thirteen hours straight, and I was like I texted I remember texting her and being like Look I'm still working, um, I can't leave I I may not be able to make it, and she was like no, no no you have to go like There's still one more car leaving at nine because a lot of other people can't leave till later so you know here's here's my brother's number, um, text him. Tell him you're coming, and you know they're not leaving till nine nine thirty, so you'll make it. And she was like, um, "Oh yeah, text my brother, my brother Clark." And I was like, "Who names their kid Clark? It's like twenty sixteen, like Jesus Christ." Um, and then met him, and I guess subconsciously had been effect- expecting this like you know balding thirty year old man because that's what Clark you know means to me in my head. Um, and there was this guy, and I was like, "Huh, okay." Um, and then turned away, um, but for a moment it was just like, they're not awful to look at.
0: Um, I was set to drive a number of people in uh, the SUV that that we borrow from my parents from time to time. And Ariho was the last person to show up at the meeting place. And this just adorable person walks up to the suburban ha- happy and and bubbly and like kind of nervous as I learned later because she didn't know anybody on the trip said that she'd been pulling all-nighters and hadn't had dinner and was really hungry and I was eating a burrito at the time and uh, offered her a bite
2: walked up and hadn't eaten anything all day so I asked everyone whether they you know, whether they had eaten dinner, and everyone was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this guy standing there eating a burrito, and he's like, you can have a bite of my burrito. And I was like, no, weird men I've never met. Um, but I was like, thanks, I, I'm okay, like, I'm vegetarian. He's like, that's fine, I'm vegetarian too. And I was like, I remember being surprised, I was like, huh, white boy, being vegetarian.
0: Do you want a, a bite of my burrito? Random person who I've never met before, but who I'm now kind of flirting with. Uh, and she said no, I'm a vegetarian, assuming that, you know, tall white guy is uh, not one himself. And I said, that's okay, this is paneer tikka masala. (laughs) I I did get her her own burrito eventually, or at least made steered the car in the direction so that everybody else in the car could get the same burrito that I'd gotten.
2: The next day I tried to go snowboarding you know a bunch of us were on the mountain Clark had taken a bunch of us up and he had gone off snowboarding but we couldn't get a lesson so we, we were trying to head back and so I just texted Clark and I was like hey we can't get a lesson so I guess we'll just figure out how to get home and you know and I remember him texting me like oh you don't have to leave like I'll teach you how to snowboard and so he took me up the mountain and uh, I was terrified and I was on my ass the whole time but uh, he tried to teach me and uh, you know it was we ended up hanging out and we went on a walk and and I remember being really surprised that this guy who had basically never met any of us before was offering to spend his time teaching us how to snowboard. Looking back now, I feel like that's so like Clark to spend his time like making people feel included and and we ended up hanging out a lot that weekend because I didn't really know anyone else in that group. And I remember thinking right from the start how kind of surprised I was that this white guy from Menlo Park and me with, you know, my hoboing across the world had so much in common, not just in terms of, you know, interests, but just sensibilities, I guess. where family was really important and learning um, was always a passion and anyway so we ended up spending a lot of time together that weekend and that kind of never stopped usually when you meet someone on a vacation or something like that they're not a part of your normal life and it kind of stays in this vacation bubble um, you know and it never really goes anywhere And I feel like Clark came into my life and basically never left. I was like, okay, I guess we should have a conversation because you're just not leaving. We gotta have this conversation. And so we had that conversation very, very early and very awkwardly.
1: After having that early awkward conversation, there was still a potentially more awkward, even earlier conversation to be had.
2: I, I met Clark just a couple of months before we graduated um, in February. And I was graduating in June, so I'd already kind of started the job search. I'd just met him. I didn't know what was going to happen, but, you know, I thought it was only fair to have that conversation with him and and kind of ask whether he wanted to be factored in. And he said he did. And that was really the first time where I was like, okay, I guess I have to, like, really take this more seriously than I was... Not that I wasn't taking it seriously, but it was... It was now more than just a job, you know, because I I really wanted to see how things were gonna play out with Clark and and that was kind of my first taste of like oh there's there's more at stake like I kind of I really I want this you know I want a good job I want to be able to stay and I, I needed to be in San Francisco it can no longer be anywhere in the country I would really like it to be in San Francisco because he was here. H-1B is a visa that is basically an employment visa. When you come here as a student, you're on an F-1 visa. Um, it allows you to, you know, remain here for the duration of your, if your program, however long that may be. And the F-1 gives you a one-year kind of stopgap called the OPT after you graduate. So you can get, um, it's called optional practical training, which means, hey, you studied, you know, this particular subject for this many years. Now you get a year to actually try and get a job in the United States and and practice your craft. After that one year, either you you leave the country or you get a job during that one year that will sponsor your H-1B, which effectively means, you know, they file paperwork on your behalf and, and say, look, here's this, you know, exceptionally talented person. She has these skills that we haven't been able to find anywhere else we've employed her, we like her, we'd like her to stay in the country. And you basically apply for an H-1B. And if the government grants it to you, you get to remain in the country as long as you're employed. And that's really the catch is that the OPT is for work and you you do have to have a job in order to be able to stay in the country on an OPT, but you do have, it's, it's a little more lenient. So if you're on an OPT and you can't find a job immediately after you graduate or you you know, only have a three-month internship, you can still stay in the country. You have a stopgap of, I believe it's 60 days, um, where you can remain in the country and be unemployed as long as you can say that you are actively looking for work. Um, on the H-1B, there's no such leniency. So your H-1B is tied to the company that sponsors you. Um, if I'm working for Company A and Company A sponsors me, I have to always be employed by Company A as long as I'm in the country. If I get fired by Company A or if I quit, unfortunately, there's no kind of dates or times mentioned in in the legalese of the H-1B. So some people have lost their jobs in an H-1B but have kind of managed to stay in the country for a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. Um, and not been caught, but it's a huge risk. And if you are caught, you're technically staying in the country illegally and you can be banned for up to 10 years.
1: I do want to clarify one thing here. You can change jobs while on an H-1B, but your new employer must file an H-1B transfer petition. And that process must be initiated before you leave your current employer. The details there can get a little murky. But this path, this process of F-1 to OPT to H-1B... This has become sort of the regular, accepted immigration path for international students in the U.S., especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, and a lot of people would add a green card on as the next natural step. In fact, the next step after that would be naturalization, citizenship. While the details of why the H-1B exists don't explicitly support this five-step process, this has become a pretty typical approach to citizenship in the U.S. for highly skilled people, but it obviously does not come without its difficulties. There's getting into and through school, finding a job, specifically one that will sponsor your H-1B, winning the H-1B lottery, meeting criteria for and being sponsored for your green card application, obtaining that green card, which is its own very long process, living in the States for five years, filing an application for naturalization, and finishing that process, which has its own timeline and set of hurdles. So in the grand scheme of things, Ariha is very early on in this whole thing.
2: So I did get a job after I graduated. Um, It didn't work out. Um, It was just not a good fit. Um, They had agreed to sponsor my H-1B, but it didn't work out. Luckily, because I was still on my OPT, it was okay that that job didn't work out, and I actually spent, I believe it was like a month and a half or two months unemployed and looking for work, and I was able to get a new job that also agreed to sponsor my visa which is great, and that's what happened. So in April, they sponsored me. The H1B is a lottery. It's not a merit-based application. It's a lottery, in the literal sense of the word, which a lot of people don't understand. It's literally a lottery. Names go in a box, names come out. Those people get the H1B, and the others don't. Um, And I think the year I applied, there were something like like 65,000 visas or something like that available, and over 300,000 people applied, or over 320,000 people applied. Something crazy like that. Um, and it's always like that. Um, and so you just really just have to get lucky. Um, and I was, I was lucky, and I got the H-1B.
1: I want to point out here that there's absolutely no room for error. Aria and other people in her situation never get to settle into a comfortable place when it comes to their job security. Even if everything is going perfectly... The idea that if it changed, all of a sudden, they wouldn't have an opportunity to find something else? That wrecks any sense of normalcy. Like, sure, in a reha situation, H-1B transfers are a little easier than petitioning for a new H-1B. But if she lost her job tomorrow, everything she's worked for would fall apart immediately. If you're an American citizen, a simply does not have the options that you do. And if you're not, well, then, even if you haven't been in this exact situation, you probably understand. At least a little bit. I don't
2: know. I, I mean, I still don't want to do long distance because I've, I've done it before and it's it's hard and it's just not... If it, it would feel like moving backwards at this point because um, we live together and I would rather move forward, if anything. Um, and I think, like, that really, yeah, that's that's still like my primary concern it's like if i wasn't with clark or if i felt like um you know if things kind of fell into place and i felt like oh we could always kind of both go live in india it wouldn't like there would be that would come with its own set of challenges but it wouldn't it would still be slightly less difficult as opposed to now where it's like okay, I don't want to do long distance, so I have to keep a job, and I also still have to be relatively local. Because like, now he has a he has a startup here in California, and and you know that's crucial for him to be here, and his family is here, and and I get all of that. Um, and it totally makes sense, but it's also kind of just like okay, you're. I already have a very, very small pool to pick from, and it's just getting with every with every other factor that I have to consider, it just gets even smaller. I think unless you've been in this position, you don't you can't really understand how how stressful it is. It's kind of like this like constant low level stress of. When's the ground gonna fall out from under my feet? Uh, what will I do then? Um, will I be okay? I just don't know until it happens what's gonna happen. Um, and I appreciate the support and, you know, that makes it, like, him being there makes things better in general. But that doesn't mean that it's not really hard and frustrating and isolating sometimes.
0: As far as I can tell, Ariha's job search is 10 to 15 times worse than most other people's. Not 10 to 15%, but 10 to 15 times. In tech, in San Francisco, we're in boom times right now, so it's like the late 90s. If you don't like where you're at, you can have a new job by next afternoon. So I, I don't have a, a baseline for how it is for people out outside of that. But it seems like she has to apply to 10 to 15 times more jobs than anybody else because 14 times out of 15, when she gets through the initial screen, they ask about immigration status and just say no. So the H-1B requires that you get a job which is in line with your training, your higher education. So unlike a lot of our peers, Ariha can't, do things like try out several different industries, take a couple of months off and make things in the wood shop, stop and try a personal project. I find myself feeling really guilty that my career is here in the Bay Area or at least in California and that We're not married right now, so that means that while a breadth of career options might be available to her back in India, I feel like kind of it's my fault um, that she has, you know, only only so very few options. But at the same time, like we 're not ready to be married just yet, and we had talked about that probably in the first couple of weeks of of knowing each other. Uh, we had both come to the conclusion that we n- neither of us was interested in uh, accelerating a marriage up to the State Department's timeline. I was prepared to continue the relationship here on those grounds. Yeah, I I didn't want to lose her to, to an immigration status.
2: that's kind of like goes back to what we were saying about having kind of having those conversations pushed up early or having, having your timeline kind of expedited. Right. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's not necessarily something that I don't want to do, but you know, maybe, you know, if this visa thing wasn't an issue, it it wouldn't be a conversation we had for another six months or a year or two years. Like marriage to me is just so important, and it's so important to me that it'd be real that no matter how important staying here and the visa thing is to me, marriage still trumps that um and it was I mean it's always been the same with any conversation with Clark too it's like yeah i'm I'm asking you to have this conversation with me earlier than than you might be comfortable with um, but I would I would as hard as it would be i would almost rather that you say no i don't want to do this as opposed to rushing into it just because you feel pressured and that's the thing though that's that's what kind of is really hard sometimes for me is that it's it's always in the conversation and so there's always this kind of fear in the back of my head or this kind of like skepticism where it's like oh, is this real um like why are we talking about this like would we would be would we be having the same conversation in the same way otherwise um that's not a healthy way to think about it because it is a fact and it doesn't change and you kind of have to go with that but it does introduce like another layer of of kind of like you know checking checking what's real and what's not
1: You may have heard of this, but the president has openly pondered doubling the minimum salary requirement for the H-1B visa. I asked Ariha how those rumors were affecting her.
2: It doesn't matter. It's just, it's just kind of, it's luck, it's chance. You know, I, I keep my head down and I do what I can and it's entirely possible that that doesn't work anyway. Obviously, if that came to pass where he raised the minimum salary requirements, that would make it at, at least for me, as a writer, as a journalist, basically impossible to get a job. I, I think if that that came to pass effectively, that would be that would be the end of it because i don't I don't see anybody paying me one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to 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 handle their blog. I just don't
1: if there's anything about immigration that hasn't changed since President Trump took office, It's that, as an immigrant, you never get a chance to relax. Things are always a bit unstable, and your status is always in question. Status is produced by me, Matt Horton. Music is by Tyler Van Arsdale, Sefia, Lakey Inspired, and Ben Mitchell. The Status theme song is Bread and Circuses Are Back by Ben Mitchell. Status is on Twitter at statuspodcast and you can send email to podcaststatus at gmail.com That's at statuspodcast on Twitter and podcaststatus at gmail.com If you liked the episode, make sure you go to iTunes and leave a review. If you don't know what to write, write a poem or suggest another of your favorite podcasts. For you, I'm going to suggest one of mine. Check out The Truth. It's this great fiction podcast that I think some of you will love. You'll hear from me in two weeks with a new story. I'll talk to you then.